Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are we that you are mindful of us? We were blind while attempting to enjoy your sunlight, deaf while attempting to hear your birds. We were smelling the aroma of your flowers but missing the aroma of your grace. Oh, happy day when our dead hearts started beating, our blind eyes started seeing, our frozen souls started thawing, when our old self died and our new self came alive. We had such a desire to swim in sin, but now only to bathe in blood, sinless blood, righteous blood, cleansing blood, irresistible blood. Jesus, we hated you and loved the world, but now we refuse to love a world that crucified you. As we open the book, we realize these words are good pasture. So lead us, great shepherd, to feast in fields of truth. You are the revealer of hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. As a master craftsman knows a grain of wood, as a blacksmith knows iron, so you know our hearts. Please deliver us from our goodless good deeds, our prayerless prayers, our praiseless praise, our worshipless worship. Infuse our acts of devotion with meaning and life. To approach you, we are not worthy. We are not worthy. We are not worthy. But Christ is worthy. Jesus Christ is our plea. He is our clothing. He is our covering. As we are pleading our case, we're well aware that Jesus is wrapping it in his righteousness and interceding for us. Meet us and treat us with your presence. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Let me begin by whetting your appetite. Why do you need this text? One, because you've been a baby Christian for far too long and you need to start growing. This passage will start the maturing process in you. It will rip away your excuses and bring you to accountability. It will cleanse your palate and force you to acquire the right taste buds for deep doctrine. Why do you need this text? Some of you need this text because you've been a baby Christian for far too long and you need to start growing. Others of you need this text because you've created a new category for Christian that doesn't exist in the Bible. You're not a Christian, but you think you are because you vote conservative or you support the military or you raise your kids to be moral. You will bust hell wide open because you have accepted an unbiblical definition of Christian. This passage will tear down the American definition of Christianity and rebuild a biblical one. Why do you need this text? Some of you need this text because you've been a baby Christian for far too long and you need to start growing. Others of you need this text because you've created a new category for Christian that doesn't exist in the Bible. Still others need this text because you are confused about the church and her leaders. 
You are placing too much emphasis on individuals. And you don't even know who produces growth in a church. The importance you place on human leaders reveals you don't understand God. There's a lot that brings conviction in this text. And there's a lot that brings comfort in this text. You are going to leave so encouraged by God's work in and through his church. I give you today from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, babies and farming. Babies and farming. Babies in the church, farmhands in the field. Verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul calls them brothers. A Greek term meaning both guys and gals. It's spiritual terminology. It's an affectionate word. He's saying they are in the family. They are Christians. He's, he's writing to Christians, not non-Christians. That's important to note. Because he calls them people of the flesh. And you could be thinking he's identifying them as non-Christians. But then he calls them infants in Christ. They are in Christ. If they are in Christ, they are Christians. It's two ways to describe the same people. One to shock them, fleshly. Another to inform them, infants. Paul's about to berate them. But not for a moment does he believe they are not Christians. They are Christians. But they are acting spiritually childish. They are baby-like. They are infantile. How are they infantile? They are infantile in their belief, verses 1 and 2. And they are infantile in their behavior, verse 3. Infantile in their belief, infantile in their behavior. Paul is concerned about their spiritual maturity. Now, we know that the Corinthians thought they were spiritually elite. We know that from the rest of the book. Paul is pressing them. You think you are super spiritual, but you are baby spiritual. That's evident by your belief and by your behavior. Verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. It's fine to be infantile in Christ for a short time. But it's a sin to remain infantile in Christ for a long time. Paul says you're still baby-like. Paul is writing to this church three to five years after he planted it. In three to five years, they haven't grown out of spiritual infanthood. They are several years old in the Christian faith. You should have grown into adulthood by now. You are in Christ and in diapers. No one is to be in Christ and remain in diapers. You are to grow out of diapers. Now, Paul is talking to wealthy people, very intellectual people. Some of these people were the epitome of class. They dress nicely. They can carry on intellectual conversations. He looks at them and he says, 
I would tolerate this from an infant. But you're old enough to mature beyond this. This, this is equivalent of saying, you're 30 years old and still wearing diapers. What is wrong with you? Paul is saying, I, I, I can smell your dirty diaper now. You stink. Learn to control your bowel movements. Look at the drool all over your face. Is that spit up on your shirt? Are, are you wearing a onesie? You're a 40-year-old man. Why are you in footy pajamas? It's time to get a job and get out of your mama's basement. The, your whole church, your whole church is a bunch of babies. Wah, wah, babies. This is why Paul got beat up all the time in the Bible. <laughs> Paul says, you should be eating meat. Why are you drinking milk? You should have steak on a plate, not formula in a bottle. How are you not progressing in your spiritual diet? He's concerned about their diet. They still require the spiritual diet of babies. There are two items on the food menu for Christians. Not a real diverse menu, is it? There are two choices. Milk and meat. Runny food and solid food. Food that requires teeth and food that does not require teeth. Food that you must gum to get down and food that you must rip and tear with your teeth to get down. Apparently, these Corinthian Christians remained unable to receive solid food. They didn't seem ready spiritually for anything other than milk. Now let's talk about the difference between spiritual milk and meat. First, I want you to see that both milk and meat are good. This is not a choice between two different menus. One has good teaching meat and the other has bad teaching milk. No. Both milk and meat are good teaching. This is not a choice between biblically accurate teaching and biblically inaccurate teaching. Both the milk and the meat contain good doctrine. People that eat up bad doctrine, they aren't drinking milk or eating meat. They are feasting on synthetic substitutes. No, more than that, they are drinking poison and eating toxin. Don't mistake heretical churches for giving out milk. They are handing out poison. Don't insult milk like that. Meat and milk are both Bible doctrine. Milk is rudimentary teaching. Meat is advanced teaching. Milk is the basics. Meat is the depth. Milk is easily digestible. Meat takes some work to digest. Milk is living on Bible stories. Meat is diving deep into Bible doctrine. And I find it unhelpful. I find it unhelpful when commentators try to discern which doctrines are milk and which doctrines are meat. I don't think the Bible is calling for that here. They're like, oh, 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 well, milk is the deity of Christ. Milk is the justification by faith alone. Milk is the love of God. One man said, milk is the Trinity. If that's milk, that's some hard milk. 
These Bible teachers pontificate while identifying meat as the doctrine of election. Meat as the doctrine of predestination and the sovereignty of God. Meat is the justice of God, they say. Separating the doctrines, I think it's unhelpful. And here's why. Infant Christians don't need a different doctrine than mature Christians. It's the same diet, the same menu, the same doctrine, just given in different degrees. R.C. Sproul used to say, the difference between spiritual milk and spiritual meat is one of degree, not kind. You're not receiving a different kind of teaching when you go from milk to meat. It's the same kind. It's merely in greater degrees. Same doctrine, but in greater depth. Now, I want to pause and let that rest before I tell you something very important. It is wrong to view the gospel as only milk. It is wrong to view the gospel as only milk. I've heard people teach this for years, and it's ridiculous. Paul is not speaking of two bodies of knowledge. Like he started with the gospel, and then he went on to greater things. Oh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? That's the ABCs of Christianity. No, that's wrong. It's not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. You never outgrow the gospel. You only grow as Christians by way of the gospel. You can spend your whole life studying the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and never plumb the depths. The gospel is not the front door of Christianity. It is the house of Christianity. You never move beyond the gospel. You simply go into greater depths with it. Which leads us to this truth. The gospel is both milk and meat. The gospel is both milk and meat. You don't outgrow it. You go deeper into it. One reformer said, The same Christ is the milk for babes and the solid food for adults. The Corinthians... These Corinthian Christians were, were not infant because they were newly redeemed, but because they were inexcusably immature. Paul intends to shame the church out of their troubling state. This was not an inherent inability. Otherwise, Paul could not have expressed frustration with them. This was a sin they were culpable for, responsible for. You don't blame an eight-month-old for not feasting on a filet mignon. You don't blame an eight-month-old for, for not reveling in a 60-minute sermon. But people who have been in the faith for a while should be able to feast on the filet. You are accountable for your spiritual diet. You are accountable for your spiritual diet. It was never about an inherent inability. It was always about a choice. The Corinthians had chosen to not go deeper and let us not repeat their mistake. John Chrysostom was an early church theologian in the second century. They called him Golden Mouth because of his preaching abilities. 
He commented on this verse and said, The Corinthians' inability to receive solid food was not by nature, but by choice. So they are without excuse. Paul writes to this church, a church full of infants. None of them can even deny it. They all have milk stashes. The evidence is on their top lip that they've only been drinking milk. Christian, there is no excuse for being spiritually immature. Maturity comes from growth and development. How do you grow and develop? Well, Paul attached their little progress made in the Christian faith directly to their spiritual diet. You are not growing because you are not eating properly. It's fine for babies to be babies. But it's tragic for you to be a baby because you've been saved for quite a while. You are accountable for your spiritual diet. It's not like you're going to go to heaven and say, oh, you know, my church didn't serve meat, so I'm excused. No. Go to a church that does serve meat. Jesus, just because, just because your church only serves milk will not excuse you of your responsibility to become mature in Christ. Your choice of a church to attend and join is a big part of this. The church you choose is the restaurant that will hand you the menu. And not every place is serving meat. The books you read will play a big part in this. My constant prayer for our children is that they would become readers. However, not just readers, but that they would learn to read well. And what I mean by that is books that will help them grow in their faith. Meet in the pulpit on Sundays and meet in the books all the other days. Read doctrinal books, not just fluff books. We give you a recommended reading list on our website. And I've thought about deleting all the topical stuff because that's where everyone runs. Read deeply. Ask your pastors for book recommendations. Don't ask Twitter or Instagram. Those are almost always bad spiritual advisors. If you're quite content to stay on milk, you will never learn to study the Bible deeply. It takes effort on your part. It's time to grow up and eat some meat. The church at Corinth had people who were willing they had people who were willing to help them mature. But they didn't take advantage of it. Are you falling into the same sin? Are you frustrating your spiritual teachers like the Corinthians were frustrating their spiritual teachers? Are they saying, I want to put meat on your plate, but instead I had to put milk in your bottle. A word now to pastors and Bible teachers. How do you shepherd people from infants in Christ to mature in Christ? How do you shepherd people from infants in Christ to mature in Christ? We are a church full of Bible teachers. And that's a gift. That's great to have. A word to you Bible teachers. 
Our job is to get people to eat protein. Our job is to get people to eat protein. You need to be able to identify the difference between spiritual infants and spiritual adults and teach to both. Know your audience as well as your material. And, and always push them to new heights, to greater depths. At times, overshoot them on purpose so they will have to climb to get the meat. And never excuse spiritual immaturity in your people. If someone says to you, I don't have time to study the Bible. Don't you dare say, oh, I understand. I remember that. It's a busy stage of life. Never say that. That's excusing that sin. I say, delete all social media accounts. Don't watch any TV or YouTube. Then come and talk to me and tell me you don't have time. And you're wondering, like, I don't know why they always go to Daniel Hurd for counseling and <laughs> never to you. That's maybe it. You have time for everything you value. You have time for everything that is important to you. And by the way, I've never been in a church that does this as well as you do it. FFC, you dive deeply in the scriptures, and it is a pleasure. It is a pleasure to open the word and teach you each week. Infantile in their belief, infantile in their behavior. Look at verse 3. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul chastises them for their immature sinfulness, succumbing to the pressures of their flesh. Children are sometimes attention-seeking and demanding. Spiritual childishness results in the same behavior. Paul can't make babies act like adults. He did all he could. There is a responsibility here on the hearer. It's not all on the speaker. Paul, their first pastor, and Apollos, their second pastor, labored to give them good belief that led to good behavior, but they were not maturing. And the fault was their own, not the teaching. You, you may want to blame the church for your lack of maturity or a pastor, but you need to blame yourself. Lay the blame squarely on your shoulders. These people refused to feast solely on the word and dabbled in the world. They refused to lay aside some of the previous behavior before being in Christ. All of that stunted their spiritual growth. Like squabbling toddlers, these people are characterized by jealousy. And the church became an arena in which, in which they maneuvered and advanced uh, to try to increase their standing. Paul writes, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with one another. It's worldly, it's fleshly, it's Corinthian. Jealousy and strife are markers of infanthood. Markers of being a spiritual baby. If you're constantly at strife with people, it reveals more about you than them. Paul says, not that you're in the flesh, you are in Christ, 
but you're behaving at times like you are in the flesh. He's asking them a pointed question. Are you not acting in a fleshly manner? You still have immature behavior and an immature mindset. One commentator clarifies and does so by saying, immature fleshly Christians are never the result of deficient spiritual genes or of a spiritual birth defect. They are the way they are because of their own choices. You are giving in to these sinful behaviors and natural instincts, but you don't have to. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to say no to sin. So why are you still saying yes? It leads us to this truth. The gospel is not a license to overlook your spiritual immaturity. The gospel is not a license to overlook your spiritual immaturity. Now I want to be clear. Your salvation does not depend on your spiritual growth. Nor is your salvation a way to escape your responsibility in spiritual growth. All Christians should pursue spiritual progress. All genuine Christians will desire to pursue spiritual progress. There are patterns. There are patterns that characterize baby Christians. Are you quickly angered and easily fall into arguments? Do you find it difficult to forgive people? Are you someone who can never accept criticism or correction? The self-consumed are always about themselves and no one else. Is that you? Are you fascinated with Corinth? What they wear, what they're saying, what they're watching? Are you infatuated with worldly ambition? Climbing some ladder? that God never set up? Are you a very critical person? <laughs> Good news! So were the Corinthians. Their problems centered around jealousy and fleshly behavior. And by the way, just because you're getting older doesn't mean you're maturing in Christ. Just because you're getting older in age doesn't mean you're getting older spiritually. Getting older in age is not the way to be mature in your faith. Spiritual growth doesn't come with every birthday. Now, I'm halfway finished with the sermon. But let me give you some take-home take -home questions. And I want you to get excited. We're only halfway in this journey. Here's some take-home questions. I want you to talk about these with wife, spouse, kids, family. In what areas have you seen God mature you? In what areas have you seen God mature you? That's going to be wonderful for you to walk through those. We're going to keep this slide up at the end of service, but you're not going to be able to take all this down. So if you want to take a picture, that's fine. But we'll have it up at the end so you can't get it all down. Question number two. Where specifically are you spiritually immature? You have got to evaluate yourself. Where specifically are you spiritually immature? Do you possess any sense of urgency to become mature in this area? What actions are you doing that seem to help your growth in Christ? Your activities. 
What actions, activities are you doing that seem to hinder your growth in Christ? Where are you delaying needed maturity? Where are you delaying needed maturity? Well, I'll mature in this area once I get married. I'll mature in this area once I have kids. I'll mature in this area once I get out of debt. Where are you delaying needed maturity? Walk, work through those questions sometimes today, uh, sometime today or this week. All right, now, could I get your eyes back on me? Uh, the, old, the old King James, I call it the old King Jimmy. The, the old King Jimmy translates the word flesh in our text three times as carnal. Why are you behaving carnally? Why are you so carnal? And I don't, I don't like that translation. I, I prefer fleshly over carnal. These three verses have fallen victim to misinterpretation and misapplication. Some horrible teaching has come from these three verses. I'm going to unpack it, and some of you aren't going to like it. Others of you are going to hear it for the first time, and it's, it's going to click with you. It's going to make sense. You are, you are going to like it. This is it. Baby Christians exist. Carnal Christians do not. Baby Christians exist. Carnal Christians do not. You can be an infant Christian, but not a carnal Christian. Paul's language here is ironic, not permissive. Some have ingested this kind of teaching that believes there are two kinds of Christians. Spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. I don't agree with that breakdown. I don't believe that's what this text is teaching. In fact, these Christians in the text will go on to maturity. We know that from 2 Corinthians. What is the prevailing definition of a, of a carnal Christian? I don't know your definition. I'm giving you the prevailing definition of a carnal Christian. It's not a Christian who sometimes struggles with sin. I, I'll define the teaching that promotes the existence of the so-called carnal teaching. This carnal Christian. It, it teaches that it's possible for you to be a Christian but not have Jesus on the throne of your life. That Jesus can be your Savior, but not your Lord. That you can meet Jesus in salvation, and he gives you a ticket to heaven, but real lasting change doesn't have to follow. You can get saved, but not change. You walk an aisle, you pray a prayer, and you are saved. And then you decide later, if you want Jesus to be Lord over your life or not. The first stage, Jesus becomes your Savior. The second stage, Jesus becomes your Lord. And it leads people to saying stuff like this. I received Jesus as my Savior when I was 12, but I did not really make him my Lord until I was 35. That teaching runs rampant in Southern Baptist churches and fundamentalist churches, your big box churches. In fact, that heresy permeates the evangelical church in America. It's an unbiblical teaching that downplays the lordship of Christ. Never in the Bible do you find someone coming to Jesus as Savior, but not coming to him as Lord. Never in the Bible do you find someone coming to Jesus, and then no change follows. And this is what that heresy creates. People 
who justify their repeated, unrepentant, unremorseful sin, whether it's pornography or drunkenness or pride or sex outside of marriage, and they say, well, I'm saved. Jesus is my Savior, but not my Lord. And it creates parents who are convinced that their children are believers, even though their adult children bear absolutely no tangible fruit that they are repentant Christians. And parents ease their conscience by saying, well, she walked an aisle when she was young. He prayed a prayer at age 12. If this carnal Christian exists, it will mark a significant innovation in the history of theology. No Christian throughout the history of the church believed such a person could exist. In fact, it was unheard of until 200 years ago. The Bible doesn't teach that nonsense. I received Jesus as my Savior. Then I received him as my Lord. The Bible says, no, you didn't. He comes in as Lord and Savior or he doesn't come in at all. Do you think that Jesus is up in heaven saying, Oh, I'd, mm, I'd really love to sit on the throne of your life. You just let me know when you're ready, okay? Just when you're ready. But if you're not, that's okay. I'll still bring you up here. I mean, is that how you see it? That Jesus died on a cross, forgives you of all your sins, but you don't have to do what he says? You get to be your own boss? You get to be your own God? Non-Christian, you think you are a carnal Christian. There is no such thing. Baby Christian, yes. Not carnal Christian. Do not say to me, well, don't worry about me, Kyle. I'm just a carnal Christian. You're not. There's no fruit. You prayed a prayer at the end of a service. You raised your hand. But there's no evidence that you are a Christian. An empty profession of faith can't save you. Some of you think you are a weak Christian, but you're not a Christian at all. Carnal Christianity, we've excused it. No, invented it. And it will go down as the greatest heresy in the American church. You say, Kyle, you are so mean. And I brought family here today. <laughs> mean? Is it mean for me to slap poison out of your hand? Is it rude for me to say don't consume that deadly toxin? What I just preached to you does receive some pushback. And the pushback usually comes out of a sincere motive to protect the teaching that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And they don't want works mixed into faith. The motive is good. The result can be deadly. Justification is by faith alone. Period. Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. It's not a lonely faith or a lonesome faith. Faith that is real inevitably produces works. These works are never part of the grounds in which we are justified. If, if you're looking for a good book on this, try reading the Bible. <laughs> like everything Jesus said about salvation. If you're looking for a non-inspired book, uh, John MacArthur has a book entitled The Gospel According to Jesus. That's a good read. I am not teaching, and I want to make this clear because what I say is not always what you hear. 
I am not teaching sinless perfection or that you will never struggle with sin. I'm teaching a sinning Christian is an uncomfortable person. A sinning Christian is an uncomfortable person. I don't want to make you doubt your salvation unless you need to doubt your salvation. Saying you are a Christian but bearing no fruits of repentance is madness. Our culture may give you a category for that, but the Bible doesn't. You must repent and come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now look where we are, church. We've only, we've only covered three verses. You need to listen faster. <laughs> Verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Let's stop there. You are God's farm. Babies in the church, verses 1 through 3, Farm hands in the field, verses 4 through 9. Babies in the church, farm hands in the field. Their, their divisions, their church divisions are evidence of their fleshliness. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Clearly, they haven't understood, I am a sinner. Paul says, you think of yourself as spiritual, but you're very human. Your divisions are more indicative of human babyhood than spiritual adulthood. There, there, there was a, a chronic strife and divisiveness among church members. They couldn't get along. And then it became a pattern. They displayed their immaturity by forming loyalties to certain teachers, lining up behind their favorite preachers. They had an excessive attachment to human teachers. And church leaders... Church leaders must discourage unhealthy attachments, which is what Paul is doing here. He wasn't allowing groupies to form around him. He would not allow the celebrity preacher worship to take place in his presence. This section shows the Corinthians had a radically misguided perception of the church and her leaders. They found their favorite theologian and used him to start a fight. Still happens today. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul asked these rhetorical questions to downgrade the importance of the church's teachers. The church is a farm and the teachers are the farm hands. God says, maybe you forgot who they are. They are just servants. They each carry out the assignment I gave them. And sometimes the church can do this. Have you ever heard anyone say, Oh, well, he is, 
He is such a powerful preacher. Oh, he's so amazing. I can't theologize that statement. I can't square it with this verse that says preachers are nothing more than farmhands. Don't talk about farmhands like that. Paul found it disgusting when the church fawned over preachers. D.A. Carson says it like this. Christian leaders are only servants of Christ and are not to be accorded allegiance reserved for God alone. They are servants through whom, not in whom, you believed. They are channels, simply agents. The power doesn't reside in them, it flows through them. The Corinthians' lack of understanding this truth displayed a deep ignorance in the nature of the church. The farm hands are interchangeable and replaceable. They come and go. The owner of the farm is here to stay. Notice the word assigned. These men are given jobs on God's farm. He employs them. The emphasis is on God, not the laborers. It wasn't their status or ambition that gave them that job. God gave them that job. You can't boast about the job. God assigns ministries and influences. God assigns sections of the field to farm. To focus on the gifted individual instead of the gift giver is an assault on the sovereignty of God. This church had its preachers in their hand like they were theirs. God takes them out of their hands and puts them in his. And then he says, they are mine. All the farm hands belong to God. All are on his payroll. Church, don't praise the, the well-known or the little-known. Work hard to make Jesus known. Verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul is, is inverting their cultural codes concerning their leaders. They viewed them almost as godlike. Paul says, I planted. The heiress tense looks back at the early days of Paul. Paul rolled into town and got things off the ground. He planted. Apollos watered. He came after Paul to pastor the church. There are three verb tenses in the verse. The first two, aorist active tense. The last, imperfect tense. Here's the significance of that. Their work, Paul and Apollos, their work has ended. Historical verb tense. God's work is ongoing. Progressive verb tense. Do you see, the, do you see in the text the diversity of ministry? One plows, one sows, one waters. On the Lord's farm, there is a division of labor. God has many laborers in his field. Some are planters, some are irrigators. All tasks are essential. The plow boy and the water boy are needed, but neither make the crops grow. The life and growth of the crops does not come by human effort. Who gives the growth? God. The progress of the gospel is the work of God. Church growth and missions movements happen by God's divine hand. 
Just, just thinking that a pastor is responsible for the increase is poor theology. God gives growth. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Alistair Begg, not Tyndale, not Kyle, not Daniel, not Dan. God gives the increase in the field. It would remain wild and a, and a barren piece of land if not for God turning the dead soil into a fruitful farm. You don't need to strive to produce your own growth. If you can build it, if you can attribute the growth to yourself, it's not a church that you're building. No human being builds the church. God alone builds the church. Their human leadership accomplished nothing apart from the growth God gave. So to heap unqualified, exclusive praise on the sower is just not understanding how God farms. The farmhands can't make anything grow. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Planter, the, the planter and the waterer are nothing. That's verse 7. The planter and the waterer are nothing. Verse 7. The planter and the waterer are equal. Verse 8. There's unity among the workers in the field. They are co-laborers under God. Farming is a cooperative effort. And you must see the essential unity among the farmhands. There's a unity of purpose. P Paul says, he's not my rival in the field. We are working together on God's farm. This is not a battlefield. It's a farmstead. We don't shoot one another. We are working together. And the church, including us, needs to encourage more collaborative examples in ministry. We are not isolated, farming by ourselves. This is non-competitive farm work. Verse 8 says, each will receive his wages according to his labor. The farmhands don't need recognition now. They have a reward in the future. Paul is convinced he will be rewarded for his labor on God's farm. God rewards those who labor on his farm. God will not fail to recognize the faithful work of his farmers. One pastor pointed out that God rewards on basis of labor, not result. Faithfulness is what is required of the farmhands. One may labor for 25 years and have only a handful of converts. One may labor for three years and experience an explosive number of converts. The growth is God's. The labor is ours. Remain faithful in the labor, dear farmhand. FFC, I'll close with this. You happen to be God's field in which we are working. You happen to be God's field in which we are working. Verse 9, you are God's field. Whose field? God's field. God owns the field. She belongs to God. The church belongs to God. The Lord has purchased this field with the blood of his son. FFC, you don't belong to me. 
You don't belong to the elders of this church. You belong to God. You are his field. You are his farm. Now, we want you to know how we are laboring on God's farm. The pastors of this church, we never think of ourselves as anything more than farmhands. We are leading this ministry like someone will come after us. Paul's come and go. Apollos' come and go. We will come and go. But God's field will remain. Father, use this text to bring us to maturity in Christ. Help us never to rest in the work that has been done, but to see the fields are white unto harvest. We desire to farm your land in a way that's pleasing to you. To shepherd your flock, to feed your people in a manner in which you always intended. Father, keep us faithful in this. Help this text and our exposition to result in good conversation at home and good growth among your church. This is our plea.